The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning, and welcome to Museum Life. Uh, I hope that it is spring uh, coming to you uh, wherever you are. Uh, the cherry blossoms here in Washington still aren't really giving up their stuff, but I, I have faith that they will very soon. Today's program, we're going to continue with a theme that we've had for the last couple of weeks, and that is about uh, creativity. Now, museums do some very creative work, of course, but I'm, is creativity really relegated just to the exhibit designer or the curator? Can registrars and operations managers and facilities managers be creative in their work? There's been a lot of uh, talk uh, recently and over time about the creative cultures at Google and Apple Inc., everything from how they uh, structure their workspace to how they encourage uh, time off to do their uh, individual projects. So I'm wondering what a creative culture would really look like in, in a museum. Uh, as we've known before, museums are very traditional. Uh, most of most of them, and uh, many of them are relatively conservative in their approaches. I mean, after all, they're there to preserve and conserve and protect uh, very important artifacts and objects and ideas. So, you know, I'm really sort of wondering what that what that creative uh, museum would look like. Well, this week's guest is going to let us know about some of those things, and I'm really excited to have her. Linda Norris is uh, now a good friend and a new friend of mine, and I'm so thrilled that she has an opportunity to be with us today, and she's really going to help us bring together those threads of creativity, leadership, and governance. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know Linda, she is an independent museum professional. She focuses on shaping compelling narratives, improving professional practice, and listening to the communities of uh, where museums are located. 
and she is co-author with Rainey Tisdale of a new book that was published by Left Coast Press just last year, 2013, called Creativity in Museum Practice, and I encourage all of you to take an opportunity to get this book. Today, uh, Linda is working on interpretive projects and developing professional development opportunities for museums and cultural organizations in the United States, Canada, and Europe. And later on in the show, uh, Linda is going to share with us some of her uh, experiences in working with museums in the Ukraine. But before uh, I take any more of our precious time uh, uh, singing Linda's praises, Linda, why don't you speak for yourself? Welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be here, and it's great to talk about creative museums. Linda, to get us started and to help our audience uh, uh, get to know you a little bit better and uh, help ground your uh, remarks through the show, could you just give our listeners a little bit of your career trajectory that led you to write a book about creativity in museums? Ah, well, I started, like a lot of museum people, as a teenage volunteer at my local historical society. You know, and really honestly discovered my passion then, um, which is a really great thing. And, and uh, you know, a path that went through uh, a graduate degree in museum studies, running a small historical society, running a museum service organization, and then independent consulting, um, and included along the way a Fulbright in Ukraine. And I think what's characterized all those experiences is that particularly from my work in small museums, small museums are often actually really creative places because they have fewer resources and they need to solve problems all the time. So I suspect my small museum work really helped shape this process. But then actually my time in Ukraine, um, when you are really in a different culture, immersed in a different museum culture and immersed in a different culture, um, really, you know, that shift of perspective, I think, is a real help to the creative process. It certainly was to mine. Uh, well, I think we'll uh, come back to uh, some of the examples of, of how, mu- how small museums in particular can be, uh, can be more creative. I guess what's what brought to my mind, of course, is that small museums like small boats can turn very quickly, and large museums like large ocean liners and oil tankers take a little bit more doing to get them back on uh, back on course. Is that sort of the idea? It is, and actually uh, in the course of the book, and I should also say that, that another part of my career tra- trajectory was that I blog at the Uncatalogued Museum, so the writing habit became more of a habit for me over the last, ooh, at this point, seven years of the blog. But, yeah, when we interviewed people at big museums uh, for the book, Rainey and I both found that so many people said, oh, I'm so jealous of small museums. And you'd tell small museum people that, and they'd say, what? Why is that? And it is. You're exactly right, because the, you can experiment more. There are fewer levels of people to say yes or no to a good idea, even to a bad idea, right? But the, the idea of experimentation is I think really great and amazing and small museums have incredible opportunities to do that. I wish more of them would fully embrace that. I think that's a that is a very good point. Uh I guess it's it's a uh another example of the grass is always greener and uh <laughs> 
Particularly, I'm I'm thinking, too, that as we are now uh, making our run-up to the annual meeting of the American Alliance of Museums, which will be in Seattle in mid-May, I I always uh, feel... Uh, you know, with over 4,000 people, it's so easy for any of us to get lost. But those people who come from small museums, uh, who have truly made a huge, huge, huge commitment uh, to get to the annual conference, to meet with colleagues and share their ideas, I think sometimes do feel a little overwhelmed. And so perhaps this show and your your conversations and, and your examples today will help them embrace their smallness and stand proud. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I just, there are, you know, great things that small museums are already doing and that because there's so many of them, so many of us, that they could also be doing. So it's exciting when we hear about great things that small places are undertaking. So what, uh, what really uh, propelled you and Rainey to write this book about creativity at this time in our museum industry's history? So Rainey and I actually hardly knew each other when we started writing the book, I should say, um, which is a great example of uh, risk-taking as a part of creative practice. Uh, we'd had an interest in actually, uh, Rainey was a Fulbrighter in Finland the same time I was a Fulbrighter in Ukraine, which is how we met virtually. And we just had exchanged some emails. And it just, because there's lots of, there's as you mentioned in the introduction, lots of writing in the world right now about how to make businesses more creative places and, you know, all those kinds of things. And we just kind of thought that the museum field was not thinking about it enough. And so we, you know, in the way that you think, well, we can think about this. So we decided it would be, it would make the most sense for us to think of it together. Um, And that proved absolutely to be right. Uh, I was lucky enough to have an incredible uh, co-author and writing partner in Rainey. And, um, yeah, so we just decided that the field needs to think about this because, you know, in some ways the field is kind of in a, you know, a tricky position right now because other people are moving faster. You know, you yes. think about how great libraries have become at becoming community centers and places really that communities value. We're not there yet as a field. And we need to be there. And the answer is, the answer is not a one-size-fits-all solution. The answer is finding creative solutions for your museum in your community. Uh, very, very well put. I, I agree with you completely, and, and certainly uh, many uh, uh, guests on uh, the Museum Life have expressed this feeling that you know, after 2008 and the you know sort of the air went out of the bag of, of uh, our our economy, there was a a deflation in the museum world. Of course, many of those uh, institutions were were harmed uh, and hurt. Uh, financially, and while we may be sort of you know, coming up for air now, putting our, as one colleague said, you know, we're 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 raising our heads a little bit to see you know what might be possible instead of just you know we've been in this posture of hunker down and and uh, just hope for the best. Uh, so it does seem that your book is uh, coming out at just the right time for just the right audience for people who are asking so. 
how how do I take uh, all of these experiences, good and bad, and come up with creative solutions? And we really tried to think about the book in, in that kind of way fairly early in the writing in one of our Skype conversations, which is partly how we wrote the book, were weekly Skype conversations. Um, we talked about that we wanted the book both to be manifesto about why creativity really matters in museums and why it should matter to all of us, but also toolkit. And, you know, we had started at first thinking, oh, we're going to do case studies. And we actually decided that case studies of creative museums were not necessarily the answer for us, uh, but really that stories from your peers about things they did and a whole host of tools in the book we call Try This, we're pretty explicit, that are low or no cost things you can try in your own institution. And they're really about ways of thinking and acting rather than the specific solution. You know, in a way, this is a book all about process. That's very interesting. So can you give a couple of examples of what's, what's in the toolkit or well, what should be so in my creativity of, cool, toolkit? Yeah, so some of, some of them are stories from your colleagues. Um, one of the ones I kind of think about is uh, one from an muse- art museum director who said for 20 or so years, she starts every staff and board meeting in front of a work of art as a way of reminding them, you know, and sometimes it's just a little silent time in front of a work of art, but other times it, it's also just a little like, oh, look at this, you know, kind of thing. And the whole idea is that that's why we're there, to kind of appreciate and explore the creative kind of genius. Um, other try this is are, you know, setting up cross cross siloed, as it were, idea incubation teams, setting up, um, you know, uh, places where you celebrate success and failure, you know, people set up failure walls, Um, the networks that go across outside your museum, you know, the drinking about museums movement or in London museum show off, getting better at brainstorming, right? You know, not just doing the brainstorming, leaving the room and thinking, oh, we're done. But, you know, really thinking about brainstorming and how you push it forward in a deeper way, you know, all those kinds of things make a difference. Getting more voices in the room is always a part of it. Uh, yes, uh, I, I can certainly appreciate that. I, I go into a lot of different uh, institutions and identifying who, who, who can be in the room. And I think that's a challenge for small museums where, you know, everybody's got a day job on top of brainstorming uh, a, a particular activity, as, as well as, as you say, just breaking down those silos. And I think it's also really important to understand that when we talk, I think it's really easy when in museums and any kind of institution to say, oh, creativity lives in that department or that person, the person who does exhibits or the marketing person or whatever. And we really feel really strongly that creativity needs to live in every person from the board on down and, you know, in every department of the museum that you need to, and that's actually particularly the director's role, is to really encourage and facilitate creative thinking in every, every part of the museum. Well, that's, you know, that is very interesting uh, that, uh, 
I had um, uh, last week uh, Laura Roberts and Maureen Robinson were on the show. We were talking about the importance of boards and governance. And one of the important points that, that they made was this idea that, you know, boards of trustees need to be cultivated. Uh, they need to be nurtured. They're, uh, they're, 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 they're just really, really important volunteers in an organization. And I, I, it sounds as if you're, you're sort of circling around to something similar. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're, they, all of the research right now says all of us can be more creative, right? There's, there's a ton of, of scientific research now that says when people go, oh, I'm not creative, really what they're saying is I don't know how to draw, which is not the same as being creative. <laughs> we all can be more creative, and we can all enhance our creative skills. So first of all, you're bored, right? They are creative people. You know, they, they run businesses, which actually require creativity. You know, any kind of business requires creative problem solving along the way. You know, they're leaders in other ways in their community. They're artists, whatever they are. They're creative why is it that we insist on going into board meetings and handing out the world's most boring-looking financial report and, you know, thinking the board is doing their job? You know, they can think, they can and should think creative, creatively in the strategic planning process. That's a great place for creativity to reside. When they hire a director, they should think about creativity as one of the qualities and they should, as a group, kind of, and this is something I think directors can really help facilitate, is have a little fun in those board meetings, right? That's part, part of creativity is opening yourself up to having a little fun, whatever that means. Oh, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that they had fun at the last board meeting. But they should be so, right? It's your yes, volunteer yes. time. Yes, yes. As uh, I, I think that that's a that's an incredibly important point. Um, gets back to one of the the uh, statements like I have made several times on the show is that as museums we sometimes put on the mantle of other industries, and I and I fear that at in this regard we are in the grip of what we think a corporate board meeting looks like, and maybe we saw one on television or a movie once and we think that it that the best board meeting is the one where we have the agenda we go through the agenda everybody smiles on agreement and we leave and what you're saying is maybe this is a lost opportunity absolutely because they and you can see that when board members are given opportunities to open up you know my story about the director who you know starts a board meeting in front of works of art I bet her board incredibly appreciates that time in a month when they stand in front of something beautiful or challenging, right, a work of art, mm-hmm. and get to think about it, right? That's, that's, a, that's a gift to other people, um, you know. And so I think, you know, but also think about, you know, your, your boards as other kinds of learners. You know, one of the great stories that didn't make it into the book but we heard from a colleague was, of an institution where the, you know, the facilities guy has to do the how to use a fire extinguisher lecture to the staff every year, right? It's an annual thing. And the facilities guy did it one year as an interpretive dance. And for sure, every person in the institution remembers how to use a fire extinguisher now, 
Absolutely. Well, uh, that's, that is a fantastic story. And on, uh, we're going to break right now with that image of the facilities manager dancing with his fire extinguisher. We will be back in just a moment. But before we break, I want to remind my listeners that you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com or shoot me an email at carol.bossert at verizon.net and let me know what you thought of the show as well as what museum issues we should be talking about on uh, future shows. We'll be back in just a moment with Lyndon Norris and talking more about uh, building a creative institution. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. Houston Real Estate Radio with Shannon Register. Tuesdays at 10 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Voice America's Variety Channel. As we have transitioned into a healthier housing market, supply has not been able to keep up with demand. Appraisals have struggled to keep up with rising prices, and lenders have overcorrected their loose lending practices. We track all this and more so you don't have to. HoustonRealEstateRadio.com. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And today, uh, my guest is Linda Norris. And we've been talking about uh, creativity in museums, how to build a creative culture. Uh, specifically, uh, remember, she is the co-author with Rainey Tidsdale of uh, Creativity in Museum Practice, uh, published by Left Coast Press in uh, just last year in 2013. I also want to remind uh, listeners that you can... Uh, uh, contact Linda and also read about uh, more about creativity and the other uh, activities that she's doing in the Uncatalogued Museum blog. And I would encourage you all to do that as well. It really is a is an eye opener and a refreshment uh, at the end of a uh, a, a tough day, uh, whether you're at the office or at the museum. 
during the break, Linda and I were talking a little bit uh, about the, you know, we we use certain terms. Uh, we talk about uh, creativity. We talk about leadership. And sometimes we bandy these, these words around so much that they sort of lose their meaning. Uh, before, uh, in the first segment, Linda, you were talking a little bit about, you know, what is creativity that it is, you know, it's not just being able to draw, thank goodness, or most of us really would have would have failed but it's uh it's problem solving and but it's so much more isn't it um can you give a you know, yeah we actually we spent a long time wrestling with a definition um and we really think of creative people as people who produce new creative people in creative museums new ideas and new ways of seeing things that add value Right. However, that's perceived either internally within the internal museum operations or externally to our community and our audiences. So um, it's not just new ideas. It's new ideas that add something. And um, those ideas, you know, sometimes come from a single person, but often, probably more often, they come from people working together. And yes, and 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 that was also a, a, a point that we made uh, right before we we came back from break. Is that you know to to be creative requires a little bit of fearlessness on one's part, and uh, that's why, as you said, it's better to do it with friends. Yeah, I mean it, the idea of banding together. Um, one of the things when we started this project, we did a little informal survey online and. We asked people about the barriers to create. One of the questions was about barriers to creativity at their institution. And we heard from a lot of people who said, you know, kind of early and mid-career professionals who said, oh, I think I'm creative, but my institution is not. And, you know, my director's not, my institution isn't, whatever. And the more we talked to people, the more we understood that, one, if you can find the other creative people in your institution, and you can find them if you talk at lunch and you, you actually go out of your the same people you see every day, um, and if you open your eyes to people you might see every day, that if you band together a little bit and try some small experiments and have some small successes, that's the way to start building a more creative institution. And you can do that from anywhere in the organization. That's very interesting. Uh, it, that it is like so many other things in life: starting small, gaining a little success, and gaining some confidence. Absolutely, and you know, and then those successes begin to permeate throughout the institution. You know, and so of course, for directors, the best thing they can do. You know, one of the phrases uh, that we uh, came across was that. A great director is like a, a gardener in that they, you know, cultivate and prune and kind of husband up those great creative ideas. You know, they're not the harvester cutting them down with a big swath, but it's also not only the director's creative ideas that matter. A great creative director listens, is a really good listener and encourager and facilitator. Yeah. Yes, hearkening back to some of John Durrell's uh, statements about leadership, there are many different leadership styles, but one of the, I, I would think, a hallmark of a creative museum, a uh, creative culture, is having a museum director who 
sets that example that it's okay to have ideas and it's okay to investigate those ideas and work with others to bring them to fruition and then evaluate them. Absolutely. And uh, John Maida, who's the president of the Rhode Island School of Design, has a great chart about um, traditional leaders versus creative leaders. And he thinks about a creative leader as really um, a participant in a jazz ensemble and a traditional leader as the conductor of an orchestra. So the kind of flexibility and improvisation rather than a rigid structure, which is the orchestra, right, is a pretty rigid structure with a single leader, that those two differences are a way of thinking about traditional leaders versus creative leaders. That's a very uh, useful image for me, and I, I don't think I had never really uh, uh, thought about it that way. And as you say, it's almost like with the creative uh, or the interpretive dance. I'm never going to forget it, get that because it created a a visual picture in my mind that I, I can I can hang on to. Um, you know, Linda, this a lot of this talk about uh, creativity in museums and creating a, a creative culture harks back to uh, another guest of mine and someone who's also blogging a great deal uh, is Gretchen Jennings. And of course, uh, she's been talking about the empathetic museum. And we've talked that it's, you know, it's sort of an interesting construct to say, if my museum had a personality, what would that be? Is my museum empathetic to its visitors, to its staff? And so I'm wondering if if we couldn't play that same game a little bit here and say, uh, if, if, if my museum had a personality, is it a creative personality? And if so, what? how is that manifest? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the director, but what are some of the other ways that we can identify or uh, 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 a creative uh, museum? I think it's a museum that's open. So in that way, that it's really open to conversations internally. Um, but that it's also open to conversations from its community, right? In the same way I think Gretchen thinks about empathy, right? That you have to be mm-hmm. uh, not just a listener, which is important, but also really an engager, right? That you have to be out there talking to people as an institution. Um, you, a creative museum, also fails sometimes because failure is absolutely a step on the process. You know, and so uh, I think at a creative museum, you'd see a lot of prototyping, right? Because that's one way of figuring out what's going on. That's a critical way. You'd see an institution that's not afraid to sometimes think about breaking the rules, whatever we think. You know, museums have a lot of rules. We have a lot of rules. And I think creative museums are sometimes the process of saying, so what would happen if we let people take photographs in the museum? Thankfully, a rule that is mostly coming to an end. Um, I'm working right now with the Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia, and they actually do, you know, they have an incredible manuscript collection, and they do a hands-on manuscript tour, right? That's a huge rule breaker that you let people, the general public, handle your manuscripts. But, right, that's an incredible experience. So I think the opportunity to rethink And so I would say a creative museum is really, you can see it because it's never set. You know, it's not the museum that you say, oh, I went in fourth grade. I never need to go back. Ah, yes. 
you know, it's always exper- it's experimenting. So what in your uh, in your research, you know, you said that you didn't do case studies, but clearly you, uh, you know, you have you have stories of, of creative museums. Can you share a couple of, of, of the uh, stories that really stand out for you? Sure. Uh, several. I mean, you know, one, I think, uh, that came from uh, Jane Addams Hall House in Chicago, you know, which is they had an alternative labeling project, right? So they just really thought about labels in a different kind of way, including, um, you know, kind of a, a label for her, I think it's her homeopathic um, medicine kit, where you can make an appointment, come in, have tea, and read a 25-page label, right? Which is a visit, as you know, all of us are like, no, 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 no one's interested. But, you know, they are. Uh, another great example came from a very small museum in the Midwest, whose name I'm going to forget right now. Um, they had a local theater group come to them and say, you know, we're interested in doing some kind of theater performance about local history. But what they did was something called paddle theater, where the performers are on shore at a river, and the, part of the audience paddles to a spot sees one act of the play and then paddles to the next spot. Like what an amazing way to learn about local history. You know, so that those kinds of creative stories, we had lots of stories from people about their own creative practice as well. You know, that they, um, you know, how they get in the mood, how they make break the creative log jam, whether it's, you know, walking your dog or turning on music or whatever, all those kinds of things. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, so sort of shifting gears here, we've been talking about the, the museum as a, you know, sort of the, the, the corporate, the, the, the broader, uh, organization. But individuals too have to continue to, uh, stoke their, their, their creative pump, so to speak. And, you know, what's interesting to me, particularly as we're talking about, uh, people who work in the museum that maybe don't have the most creative job description. You know, so they're not the uh, interpretive planner or they're not the, the director of exhibits. You know, those are the, the uh, uh, you know, very, very creative uh, uh, types. But so many people perhaps are an administrative assistant or they're the, the facilities manager. Oftentimes these people will uh, release their creativity when they go home. Uh, whether it's in a hobby that they enjoy or, as you say, walking their dog and, and uh, listen, or listening to music, uh, maybe taking a, a, a dance class. And so how, uh, were there stories about how people were beginning to transition their, their uh, you know, off hours back to their, uh, their museum work? I think part of it is to kind of pay attention to your colleagues and to think about what you're passionate about. There, Twyla Tharp, the dancer, has a great creative inventory um, that she proposes in her book called, I think it's called Think Like an Artist. Um, and, you know, it's a great, talks about your own creative process. So I think it's so many things. I've actually been involved in a project where we're interviewing for exhibit designers right now. And one of the questions we've been asking them at the end of the interview is 
to describe something else they're passionate about in their life. And as people do it, you know, it's been a serious interview, but when you ask people that question, whether it's about building kayaks or cooking or whatever, people light up, right? You know, it becomes not work. It becomes the thing they're passionate about. But those things, you know, cooking is a creative effort, right, involves thinking about different cultures, thinking about where things come from, thinking about how things go together. Those are all skills that are usable in a museum. So I think we need to think about our own selves differently and about how to put those skills to work. And I think we always need to think that that person sitting next to you or that person you know, who is cataloging in the basement who you, like, never see hardly, that those people also have creative lives that are valuable and worth having a conversation about how they can contribute to the overall creative life of the museum. I find this so very interesting, Linda. I know, um, as uh, like you, I've 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 been in the field for a while, and we we have colleagues who talk about very special times in the lives of certain institutions uh, that the you know a group of people came together at the right time uh, or under the right conditions. I'm thinking about all of the work that was done at the Boston Children's Museum. We talk about the work that was done at the Field Museum of Natural History. Uh, and and I, I'm sure that we could uh, come up with some others. But there, there are always some of these magic moments uh, and I, I, I don't know about you, I've often thought, gosh, I lived at the wrong time or the wrong place or I was in the wrong institution. Uh, but perhaps what, you know, the core was uh, at these special, uh, what we, you know, consider special moments was that there, there was a group of people who, who got to know each other. And got to know each other, as you say, their passions outside of work. And uh, then they, they somehow these ideas were directed to the goals of the institution. Absolutely. You know, one of the stories that came from um, uh, actually one of our German colleagues, her suggestion was she had had a boss at one point that when a team got stuck on a project, he would say towards the end of the day, he said, okay, we're all going out for a drink. And they would go out for a drink, and it would be forbidden to talk about work and the project. So they would all go out for a drink as a team, but they would not talk about the project. They would talk about everything else. And she said, inevitably, the next day when you came back in, there were new ideas and a kind of commitment to working together that had really been inspired by that time together but not grinding away on the project. And so, yeah, I think a sense that we – you know, in some ways, I guess part of what Rainey and I both brought to the book is that we really like people, you know, and that, that we see potential in everyone. And, you know, that sounds kind of goofy, but it's true, I think. And so that that idea that the goal is to find ways to work with people and to bring out their best is, is I think, really a critical part of the book. I, that's so well said. And uh, with that, I think it's a, a good uh, time to segue and break again. Uh, I, be, but before I do, I want to remind 
remind everyone of uh, you can continue uh, this conversation with Linda and uh, gain more of her wisdom on her blog, The Uncatalogued Museum. Of course, you can always reach me. Uh, continue the conversation at carolbossertservices.com uh, as well as shoot me an email at carol.bossert at verizon.net. What issues in the museum world do you think that we should be talking about on the show in coming weeks? Again, you're listening to Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert, and we'll be back in just a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. Uh, this is Carol Bossert, and I've... We've been having a wonderful conversation today with Linda Norris, uh, who is the co-author of uh, the Creative Museum, uh, published by uh, Left Coast Press uh, just last year in 2013. And we've been talking, uh, truly an inspirational uh, program today. Uh, I'm uplifted about the potential of creativity in museums and the importance of uh, taking that one aspect of your life that you have uh, find great passion in and using that to increase your creative capacity even in the work you do and bringing that back to the museum and there is no more important time than right now in in, uh, our culture uh, in our society and in our museum industry to uh, uh, increase our creative capacities wouldn't you agree Linda? 
Absolutely. I think it's really critical right now. So we've talked about some of the hallmarks of being a creative museum and leadership, but let's maybe, uh, uh, not to bring the, the show down a, a little bit, but, but we do live in reality. Uh, what are some of the killers of creativity that, that you found in your either interviews with people or some of the stories that you heard? So one of them, of course, is ourselves. Self-censorship is a huge creativity killer. Right, that you say in your head, even before an idea gets out onto paper or in a meeting, in your head you say, oh, no, they'll never go for that. And honestly, I'll say that I think women are more prone to that than men are, in our, maybe everywhere, but certainly in our field. And I think that's something we really need to get over. So that's one I put really high on the list. Uh, another one is the phrase, well, we've tried that. Right? Mm-hmm. You've heard that before, I'm sure. And the other is the part that people hoard things, right? They hoard ideas or they hoard information, right? That that kind of, it, it, you, uh, every, everybody has worked with somebody who's like that. Oh, it's my idea or, oh, you can't see those numbers because whatever. That kind of hoarding just is, absolutely a creativity creativity killer as well. So those are the big three that I think of off the top of my head. You know, what is so interesting in your answer, Linda, and I just want to underscore that you, uh, the, the killers to creativity were all uh, personal choices. You did not mention uh, the budget or the board, or you know, some uh, external issue happening in the community, uh, or or anything else that we always hear. Uh, again, I'm I'm sort of, I'm starting to gear myself up for AAM in uh, in Seattle in the next few weeks, and and inevitably you get a group of museum people together and they start talking, and and maybe someone has an idea, and then someone will say, Oh, but we can't. Do do that because we don't have any money or the board needs to do XYZ or the community government needs to do ABC. And I think that that's very, very interesting. Well, it's so I had never really thought of it that way, but I guess that I guess that's true, right? I, I guess I think that we all have individual choices to make. You know, I'm a firm believer in that individual people change institutions that they can change the world. And so, yeah, they, these are individual choices. They're, but as a director and as a board, you, it's even more important that you're aware of these kinds of things and that you make the choices not to behave that way. But it's true of everybody in an institution, absolutely. Making a little bit of a segue then, um, w- uh, one place you, you talked about being a Fulbright scholar uh, in the Ukraine, and, and certainly the Ukraine and the Ukrainian people are, are in our hearts and our minds these days with all of the political unrest there. Talk about a place that has a lot of external challenges, uh, that, uh, and I'm sure those external challenges are being felt by their uh, the museums uh, in that in that country. Uh, could you give us uh, and our listeners? 
a little bit of insight into the Ukrainian commu- uh, museum community and 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 how they've been how they've been able to and how they may currently be uh, addressing their their issues. Uh, absolutely. So I first went to Ukraine five years ago and have continued to go back every year. And I should say it's a Ukraine, not the Ukraine. Mm. Ukrainians will appreciate that distinction. Um, and interestingly, when I first went five years ago, I, uh, you know, it was kind of amazing because it was still really a, a kind of Soviet structure, really top down from the Ministry of Culture. Um, it really, really siloed. Every organization was really, really siloed. Lots of hoarding of information and resources amongst different departments. Um, museums that, interestingly, had much larger staff than we think of in the U.S. and much fewer other resources. So that was kind of interesting to see in a way. And what I've seen over the past five years has been, you know, a real sense of some really interesting experimentation that's had to happen with often very few resources, um, you know, that just range from some really inventive exhibits. Um, you know, I think of like the Kharkiv Literature Museum, which did kind of some amazing exhibits about writers, um, dissident writers in Soviet times. Um, my, and then, of course, with the protests, um, Euromaidan and the protests of the past few months, it's been particularly fascinating. One museum right near the center, um, the Paul Ticino, I'm not sure I pronounced that right, museum, opened up their museum just for warmth for people. They made it free to come in. They just provided a safe haven. You know, Gretchen's idea of an empathetic museum absolutely played out there. The Ivan Hanchar Museum, which is a museum of, of traditional folk art, uh, moved much of their programming down to Maidan, down to the protest itself, out of the museum. They felt they needed to take their museum pro- programming to where people were right now. And, of course, they've actually now, with a group of other museums, led an effort to collect objects from the protests. Um, so that'll be particularly an interesting thing to see what happens. And now, of course, there's even less money for museums. Uh, because the government is in a financial crisis. So I think it'll be particularly interesting to see how they raise to those challenges. But we do know from all the things, our research, that uh, constraints, whatever they are, and sometimes it's budget, can help foster creativity. And actually at AAM, uh, three of my Ukrainian museum colleagues will be joining me and Tricia Edwards from the Lemelson Center at the Smithsonian to talk about how Creative how constraints have made Ukrainian museums more creative. So it's very I'm very excited that they're going to be able to come and share um, their knowledge and what they've learned along the way. Wow, I'm sure that uh, will be truly inspirational, and I am sure no one will be able to walk out of that uh, that that um, uh, workshop and say, "Oh, gee, if we just had more money, we could do more creative things." Well, and I think another thing that's really interesting is to think about for my for my Ukrainian colleagues, for us to think about, is that my colleague, my amazing colleagues there, were not just observers, right? They're not just like watching and thinking they're going to do an exhibit after. They were participants. They were on the barricades. They were on Maidan. They were being supportive in every way they could. 
And that that kind of sense that museum, both us as museum workers and our museums have a place to play in creating a more democratic, a more civically engaged society is a tremendous example for us all. And I think that that point should be underscored. Uh, and I, I fear that uh, sometimes in our conversations we begin, uh, because we're focusing so much on museums and ourselves in museums, that we forget that the people who work in museums are part of that wider culture. Yes, and that was really, you know, kind of amazingly brought home to me these last couple months. Um, so there, yeah, it's, it's just been, it's just been incredible. And, and so I'm so proud and full of admiration for those colleagues. Absolutely. So I'm thrilled that people will be able to get to meet some of them at AAM. It uh, it reminds me, too, one of the things uh, that I read in your bio is that you are also uh, going to be doing a social, uh, that you are part of a program called Museums in Politics Conference in St. Peter, Petersburg, uh, Russia. Uh, that seems to be just a, a very natural segue to some of the work that you were doing in Ukraine. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Although a little challenging right now because of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. But, uh, actually, so, uh, two German colleagues, a Russian colleague and I have been doing a blog and associated social media for the conference. So it's been a great way to, you know, increasingly I'm really interested in, um, a global perspective on all of our work. And so this has been a great way for me to, continue to expand that that knowledge so it's very exciting in that kind of way and the range of issues um you know the the sessions have been proposed but not accepted yet but as i understand it there were proposed session proposals from all over the world about issues related to museums and politics so i think that'll be you know really fascinating um to learn more about uh, yes, I, I think it will too. And, and I, uh, I, I wish you well on that. And I also, now, can we go, is there a, a blog going on right now that, that there we can is, sort of? It is called Museums and Politics. Museums, Politics and Power. Museums, politics, and power. So we can, uh, we, we can all sort of travel along with you virtually and, and see how things are going. Uh, it seems to me that one of the challenges that we still face uh, here in the United States, ironically, is that so many of our museums are not uh, terribly interested or, or almost averse to uh, uh, making a political statement, to getting involved in in politics in, in, in any regard. I know from an educational standpoint, we often sit back and say, well, we're just here to uh, provide all the facts and we'll let our our visitors make up their own minds. And it sounds to me as if this conference and some of the work you're doing is really moving things into uh, a, another level of, uh, of conversation. And I think it's really, you know, I, I greatly admire the work of the uh, International Coalition of Historic Sites of Conscience and the idea that um, places have complicated stories and there are very complicated conversations to be held. And I absolutely believe that that's a role museums can play. You know, at the moment, I'm working with the Harriet Beecher Stowe House in Connecticut, who has a great 
social justice mission and we're thinking about how to embed that that social justice mission and that commitment to social change that, of course, Stowe herself was so passionate about into a historic house experience. But the fact is, there are debates and dilemmas in every single community, you know, whether it's about urban renewal or climate change or, um, you know, uh, integration or immigration. Every community has those issues to have conversations about, and every museum could have a role in encouraging those conversations. And I think that's, I think that kind of civic engagement is a, a great, creative, important place for museums to be headed towards. Uh, I th- yes, I, I agree with you entirely. And, and lest we uh, just leave the impression that it's only these you know, big, huge uh, 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 conversations and conflicts, there are also small conversations about uh, uh, the, the school board or the school curriculum Absolutely. or whether there's a, you know, there, whether we put a playground in the local park, uh, you know, all of these things where we sometimes forget that we have a, we have a voice, all of us have a voice and that we come to the best decisions together. Well, Linda, I really want to thank you for what I think it was an inspiring conversation today. Uh, I hope to have you on on the show again, perhaps after you've your uh, your travels and some of your other projects. Again, please, please, please uh, get Linda's book that she co-wrote with Rainey Tisdale, uh, Creativity in Museum Practice. Uh, it is uh, very inspirational and gives you lots of good ideas. Uh, also, make sure. That that you follow Linda on the Uncatalogued Museum blog, and now we know to uh, also follow you on Museum Politics and... Power. Power, Museum Politics and Power. Again, uh, thank you for listening today on Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert. Uh, Remember to reach out to me at carol.bossert at verizon.net and let me know what museum issues you'd like to to, uh, be in conversation about. I'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.